Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, you're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull and this is Out of the Box, the place where every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person and their record collection and pour over some of the stories that come with it. Right now, I'm coming to you from FBI's studio in Redfern and my guest is joining me remotely. Each of us are coming to you from unceded Gadigal land, so I want to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. Today's episode of Out of the Box is all about storytelling and Aboriginal people have been sharing stories on this land since the beginning of time. My guest is Maeve Marsden. Maeve is an independent artist and creative producer who works across theatre, musical theatre, cabaret and storytelling. Over the past decade, she's written, directed, produced and performed in a bunch of shows and toured extensively in Australia, New Zealand and the UK. She's going to appear at the Sydney Opera House this weekend as part of All About Women. But before we get to that, I want to roll through all of the stories from her life and the songs that have been playing in the background. Maeve, thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box today. Thanks for having me. I want to just, I want to do this one in chronological order. I think you've got such an amazing chronology in your life. So where does it begin? Gosh, um, I was born in, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, where does it all begin? Um, I was born in London to two mothers, Louise and Teresa. And I, so, so I suppose my story begins with them deciding to have children at all, which in the late seventies, early eighties was not nearly as common as it is now. Um, but they met in London working at a women's refuge and decided that they wanted children. And so my brother Rowan came first and then me and then my younger sister Gronya. And so, yeah, so we were born in London and it was this um, kind of incredible community of predominantly lesbians, but also sort of politically minded activists of a similar ilk. And so the two men who were sperm donors for us um, were left wing and progressive and cared about my parents' ability to have a family. So they donated sperm and this was pre sort of IVF mayhem. IVF existed, but it definitely wasn't accessible to lesbians. Um, And so it was all done kind of through community and that's how I was conceived. And we lived there in London till I was four before moving to Australia. When you talk about those men, it sounds like you knew them. Did you have a relationship with them growing up? Oh, yeah. So not a familial, like parental relationship, but Mm. they were family friends the way, you know, people have family friends. Uh, But because we lived in Australia, we didn't see them as much as perhaps we would have. And yeah, definitely not a parental or fatherly role in our lives. But I am in touch with my sperm donor, Dave. He's a lovely guy. Um, I've just had a child and so I got in touch with him and when I was planning to conceive and talked to him about medical history and some practical things and ended up also chatting about his family history, which at 37 I'd never really asked him about. So it's not like the way people would think of like an extra parent or even as close as perhaps mm. an uncle or aunt, but definitely in our lives and, you know, if I go to England I see both men, if I, if I have time. Um, yeah, my brother and sister have a different donor based on who I think was available each month. They would switch. <laughs> and it was just luck of the draw. So, yeah, lovely guys, but not yeah. um, not in that sense of having another parent. And you mentioned that you moved to Sydney when you were four. Where did you settle when you came mm. here? So we, uh, one of my mother's, Louise, has a big Australian-Irish Catholic family and two of her brothers mm. lived out in Campbelltown. 
And so when we first moved here, all five of us lived in a one-bedroom granny flat out the back of Uncle Jim's house. And I think we lived there for about six to eight months while we found our feet and worked out if we were going to stay here. And then one of the other brothers, John, um, who's passed away now, helped us get a place. He said, oh, Leichhardt, that's where your sort live. Um, Leichhardt being known as Dicart at the time. And um, so he helped us get a place there and we lived in Leichhardt um, then until I was in high school and stayed in the inner west, really. My family still are all based in Sydney's inner west. So was it just a stereotype or was that the reality of it as well? Do you remember it No, it was the reality. It was like Italians and lesbians. (laughs) Italians and lesbians lived in Leica. What we would think of kind of Newtown's culture now, though obviously less youthful, it was more family-based, you were far more likely to find other lesbians in kind of Leica and that pocket of the inner west. And I suppose they were looking for somewhere that we were least likely to face discrimination in schools or in the street, and that's where he sent us. And, yeah. Did your mums find like-minded individuals in the community and were they involved in the community when you got to Leichhardt? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we already had connections because Louise, the Australian mother, out of her six siblings, three are gay. So that was an immediate introduction to the local community. But because my mothers had been quite active back in London, they kind of applied that here and started a lesbian mothers with children group almost as soon as we arrived and started reaching out and finding other lesbian parents. Though we were often the eldest kids at the um, gatherings, Uh, but we made heaps of friends through that group and many of the kids I've ended up reconnecting with kind of in adulthood. It was a funny kind of mix of people. It was a much smaller community of queer families then than I think people have now and much more focused on lesbians. There were fewer gay dads Mm. or um, families with multiple parents and all the kind of things you have now. But they found they found us a community. And But we were generally, like at school and stuff, we were generally the first queer family anyone met. Wow. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really rare that people would be like, oh, yeah, sure, gay parents. It was, even if they were accepting, it was still very novel and new in the late 80s. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting too, and, you know, tell me if I'm, like, making assumptions here, but I think there is a distinction between having a gay family and then having a gay family like your one where your mums are so involved in the community and active and almost involved in some kind of activism. Do do you think that impacted you in any way? I think back then you didn't have a choice but to be activists if you're in a queer family. And on paper, my parents were sort of average people one's a pharmacist one's a librarian they Mm. weren't kind of career activists as we think of it now but you know at a certain point we wanted health insurance as a family and the health fund wouldn't insure us as a family so they become activists because they are fighting for the right to be insured as a family you know one of my mothers is English and she wanted a partner visa when she came here that's not allowed so suddenly they're campaigning for her to become an Australian resident by virtue of being Louise's partner. So Mm. that kind of, I think these days activism is seen as kind of a career as well. But at that point it was just that they kept coming up against things and pushing through them. Um, And so of course that impacts your childhood and the way you kind of see the world. And you mentioned earlier, we're doing all about women and the event this weekend is queer stories. And that storytelling, that yearning to tell stories was because I was constantly telling my story, I think, Mm. Um, and constantly explaining myself to people. And so I become a talker and I become an explainer and I become a performer essentially. um, And that has stuck. Um, Mm. So yeah, I think they definitely impacted me in that way. 
And you jump on shows like Out of the Box to share your story as well. Um, <laughs> and we will continue sharing your story in a few minutes. But first, you've picked a song, Maeve. What would you like to play first? Yeah, look, it, it's a it's a funny pivot. Um, I believe <laughs> that country music is inherently gay um, the, or, or specifically inherently lesbian, just the heightened emotions. And I know most country singers are singing very heterosexual love songs. But we listen to stacks of country music growing up. Um, we listen to a lot of lesbian political folk music as well. It was a strange mix. But a lot of my childhood memories are around listening to Dolly Parton in the car uh, with my mother's, specifically with Teresa, who was a particular country music fan. So I picked Jolene by Dolly Parton because, yeah, it's just such a part. Those songs of like Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt and, yeah, they're just, they're in my bones. So Jolene by Dolly Parton. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the podcast or on the website, that was a song I never before now would have described as gay. It was Jolene by Dolly Parton. It was chosen by my guest on the show, Maeve Marsden. Maeve, for the first part of the show, we did talk about your life growing up in a gay family. You now identify as a gay woman. When did you first start to come to terms with your own sexuality? See, the funny thing is that even the phrase come to terms with your sexuality without sort of um, sounding combative is sort of sounds like a kind of heterosexual read on the experience. Not that I'm saying you are, but that's the whole world's understanding of being queer is that you will have to come to terms with it. Whereas for me, queerness was the state of normalcy. So there was no coming to terms with it. It was just like at a certain point in my adolescence, I was attracted mm. to women and, and that was totally accepted in my household. They were slightly cheeky when I said I was bisexual as a teenager and they were like, don't be ridiculous, Maeve, make a decision. Not that I'm outing my parents <laughs> as being biphobes. They weren't. They were teasing me. <laughs> um, and then at a certain point in my early 20s, I had sex with a man and I didn't like it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is probably not for me. And then I kind of considered queer is the word that I like the best because it leaves openness to possibility. But the I suppose I... For me, sexuality is like this ongoing sense of being rather than a turning point or a moment of revelation that I think a lot of people have because I didn't have anything to come up against. Like I never, I didn't have to sort of come out. I came out to friends and I came out, we all come out all the time. But I think having a home space where whoever you are is going to be accepted is this kind of liberating and relatively alien concept to most people who grew up in straight families. Um, they can't imagine not having to have, hidden something even if they only had to hide it briefly so yeah so I I came out at high school to my friends and most of my friends were from kind of progressive lefty inner west families who had a real mix of parents there was another kid whose mother was a lesbian there's a woman whose um, parent later came out as trans you know like we were from a pretty accepting community so we all just made out throughout year nine <laughs> and that was my coming out and then I ran off to university and foolishly took myself 
to a rural area where I went to uni in Bathurst, where of course there were other queer people, but fewer than I would have encountered had I stayed in Sydney. So probably the closest I came to having any difficulties with being queer was the years that I was at uni, even though I had lots of queer friends and people were on the surface accepting. There was just fewer options for kind of queer friends or for romance out there. Tell me about the choice to head out to Bathurst for uni. Look, I think it's not unconnected to kind of growing up in a queer family. I went to quite a competitive selective high school in Sydney and growing up in a lesbian family when it wasn't quote unquote normal, we were under a reasonable amount of pressure to prove our family's right to exist. And so we had this really academically kind of intense schooling where the need to be good and I suppose a poster child for the family was something that I was always really hyper aware of. And so my best friend at high school, Anna, heard about this theatre course out in Bathurst and I love the arts and everyone else at my school was doing medicine or law at Sydney Uni or, you know, journalism. And I decided that I was going to bugger off and leave that kind of competitive world and take myself somewhere that I was a bit more uncomfortable and that I was challenging myself in a different and sort of practical and creative way. And so we ran off to Bathurst when we were 18 and the uni out there, the theatre course is being defunded, which is really sad, but it's this funny thing where you've got this town full of students, most of whom have moved away from home, most of whom are 18, all of whom are drinking (laughs) and kind of living these kind of wild lives where you all live around the corner from each other and there's not stacks to do, so you just make theatre the whole time. So it was a kind of baptism of fire, both in terms of being away from my inner west bubble and challenging myself not so much academically but creatively and yeah it was it was I can't even remember where this question started I'm just rambling about myself (laughs) no no it's I was I asked you about the um the choice to go to uni in Bathurst and it's funny you say that because I have had creatives on the show before who've come from Bathurst and they talk about Mm. you know not having so many options for the arts so you know you have to like fight a little bit harder to get Mm. gigs or to Mm. bask or to put on shows and having gone through this baptism of fire Mm. when you came out of it did you keep working in theatre where did you head from there no I came to so I came to Sydney having finished my degree out there and I sort of didn't quite know what I was doing I don't think I'd kind of had a two-year relationship in Bathurst that had ended in a blaze of misery now of course we're best friends because we're gay and I'm like godmother to her children (laughs) but at the time blaze of misery (laughs) um and um (laughs) and so I came back not quite sure what to do with myself. And I got a job working in kind of arts admin and event management. And what I was yearning for was less all the theatre I'd been making and more a queer community because it had been absent. And, yeah, I often tease that first girlfriend and say I couldn't have any other relationships in Bathurst because all the other lesbians had had sex with her, which is not untrue. Um, And so I came back and I just kind of, when oh, a career in the arts isn't going to happen for me, not that an arts admin isn't a career in the arts and arts administrators and producers are inherent to our industry, but a creative kind of directing or performing or writing the things that I thought I wanted to do. I just was like, it's going to be too hard. I want to meet gays and party. So I worked for like 10 years doing a mix of event management 
production management and kind of arts admin for a bunch of non-profits and government agencies whilst I found queers in Newtown and lived in share houses and slept with my friends and had messy fights in share houses with the friends that I'd been sleeping with and Mm. took drugs and danced and partied and found the queer community that I kind of hadn't had at uni. Um, And so my career stalled, but... I think that part of my life was really integral. I'm really glad I did that messy stuff. I travelled a lot and I was a messy person in their 20s. Yeah, yeah. That It's so funny you paint it that way because, yeah, the question that I had scripted for this was about, you know, what it felt like to take a sidestep from your dreams essentially mm. in the arts and kind of focus on something else, maybe being messy, but... Yeah, being messy, but messy is good. Yeah, like I I credit that time with learning to kind of be a friend and learning to be, a, for want of a less naff word, a lover. Like I hadn't had a great chance to try out being a sexual person in Bathurst, but, but being in Sydney and being in kind of the queer community of the mid-aughts <laughs> um, when everyone was going to like the Sly Fox and the bank and queer parties and you know play parties and going and exploring my sexuality and like learning to dance on drugs like I know that sounds you know (laughs) learning to be in your body like as a fat woman I felt really um out of place and unattractive in Bathurst but in Sydney people of all different body shapes were half naked on the dance floor and so that period of time I didn't know at the time that I was learning body confidence or learning a different way of expressing my humor or all these things that parts of me that had felt weird or out of place in other communities were suddenly celebrated so it was messy but it was integral to when I did return to making art to being the kind of person who could get up on stage and who could have interesting and healthy adult relationships eventually I had to have the messy ones (laughs) let's soundtrack this period of your life Maeve what song have you picked to play next so I've chosen a more recent song um because I was too off my face to remember what songs (laughs) I was dancing to back then um but this song is Tightrope by Janelle Monae and it really just exemplifies that absolute loose fun dancing where you're in your body I hear it and I can't be still and that reminds me of my 20s amazing you're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5 with me, Mia Hull, and Maeve Marsden, who chose this song. It's Tightrope by Janelle Monet. Janelle Monet on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called Tightrope. You are listening to Out of the Box. I'm Mia Hull. I am joined by Maeve Marsden, the chooser of that song. And we just talked about your 20s being this integral time that was kind of messy, but kind of important and kind of a sidestep from what you have ended up doing, which is working in the arts. So I want to talk about that return to Mm. the arts. When did you begin to pick it up again? So 
I was in, I said my 20s, but I think I was like 25 and all the messy relationships had gotten too messy and I booked up on my ticket to go backpacking because I'm a white girl cliche. Um, <laughs> and so I decided to just go and travel for a bit and work out what I was going to do. And one of the stops was at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, where my friend was working. And so I slept on her floor and I went to stacks of cabaret shows. And I'd been going to the theatre still as a punter at home. Um, and after six months of kind of schlepping around, I came back to Sydney and I thought, well, if I don't do this now, um, I can have this career in arts admin, but I should give it a shot and see if I can make performance. And so I got in touch with a woman, Phoebe, who I used to work with at uni. And I said, let's just put on a show. We'll keep our full-time jobs and we'll put on a show. I've got this idea, Lady Sings It Better, where we sing songs written by men um, as a bunch of women and allegedly do it better. <laughs> that was the premise. And so I just called some friends who sang and Phoebe was going to produce it. And the Rev Rattler had just kind of, we'd been going to heaps of like girlesque and all these amazing parties at the Rev Rattler before I went away. And I said, like, let's just book four nights. I don't know what made me think I could sell four nights worth of tickets to a show having never, but we just sort of did it as this fun chance to see if we could. And the response was really positive. And so a friend came up to us at the end of the night and said, oh, have you thought about going to Adelaide Fringe? And so the first few years of doing Ladies Things It Better, producing it with Phoebe and performing with a bunch of women, we sort of just kept going, oh, well, let's try that then. Let's see what it means to work to Adelaide Fringe. Let's email people putting on Mardi Gras and see if we can do a show. Let's try this, try that. And sometimes we made money and sometimes we lost thousands of dollars but we were just trying stuff out and we kept doing that mm. for a few years. And eventually I had this thing in my head of I can go back to Edinburgh Fringe. And it was three years later we managed to take a group of 11 to Edinburgh Fringe and do our own season there. And so, yes, yeah, so Ladies Things Are Better was kind of this vehicle and people loved it and it was feminism of a particular time and we were highlighting kind of misogynist songs um, sung by men. But we would also sometimes sing songs in earnest. And it was a chance to sing these kind of powerful and often sexual songs about women, which as a queer woman, I enjoyed. So there was the poking fun of misogyny, but there was also this kind of ability to sing sexually and powerfully that was really what liberating. What do you mean when you say singing sexually? What does that look like? Well, most songs written by women, and especially you're talking like 12, 13 years ago now, and of course there were queer female artists but it wasn't quite the explosion even that we have now and men are able to sing about women in a particular way that's kind of dominating or uh, well even just desirous even queer artists now sometimes use more kind of subtle allusions to their desire and so reframing these and singing them and in a group of women as well like in harmony was this way to, yeah, express desire for women through song. I'm not a songwriter myself. I wasn't going to write those songs myself, but but stealing them and stealing the mm. words of these men who are singing about their love for women really suited me. And it was playful and often really funny. And I think sex is funny. So singing sexual songs in a funny way is just like <laughs> my jam. But that show and or that cabaret act really stuck around for years and was a gateway to other projects. So people would hear about that and then get to know Phoebe and I as the co-producers and then we'd get to try other things. Um, so we started, you know, curating events here or putting on a little festival there where we'd book other artists. I remember booking Brenda McLean to do a show at a tiny theatre in Marrickville like 10 years ago. And 
yeah, we just kept trying stuff out and kind of accepting that we weren't making money. Um, and then at yeah. a certain point we started to, <laughs> mm. and it started to go well. And I was like, oh, maybe this can be a job. And I think it was, yeah, six years ago now, I gave up having a full-time job and decided I could have a full-time creative career. But that's still, you know, eight years of just playing and seeing if we could do it before it became mm. a full-time job. I want to talk about another one of the projects that you mm. started in this time. For someone who's maybe not familiar with queer stories, Maeve, can you tell mm. me what it is and how it began? Yeah. So the premise of Queer Stories is really simple. It's a live event where six LGBTQI plus storytellers share a 10 to 12 minute story from their life. That's the brief. <laughs> um, I say to storytellers, please tell a story that you want to tell but are never asked to which is my way of kind of going, don't tell the story the sort of cishet mainstream asks of you. You don't have to come out. You don't have to explain yourself. We're not asking for a corporate awareness training on your identity. We're asking for a personal story. And that might be about your sexuality or, or gender identity, but it might be about your favourite hobby or your mum or a relationship you had or a trip you went on. It can be anything. It doesn't have to be queer, mm. a queer story. And so that was the premise. And I started doing them in 2015 to see if the idea took, you know, like just, I felt yeah. like I was just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what stuck and people loved it. And so I started doing them as free events through the city of Sydney at Late Night Library and then started doing them every month at Giant Dwarf in 2017. And it just took off. And I think queers want to listen to each other's stories and haven't always been in the history books or in mainstream media, although that's changing. And I kept just looking for new people who would have different stories to tell and who I found interesting. And I wasn't just looking for famous queers. I was looking for a person on the street who could hold someone's attention for 10 minutes. And so I would work with these, I would work with the writers, sometimes quite hands-on with the storytelling. Sometimes someone just writes a perfect 12 minutes and I don't touch it. And I just started producing them. So then I started doing them in Melbourne and regional areas and Brisbane. Phoebe, who I mentioned earlier, ended up at the Brisbane Powerhouse. So now I have a relationship with them and writers mm. festivals. And now it's, gosh, I think there's more than 300 people who've performed at the events and I share them on the podcast. And again, I never set out to be a podcaster. I just wanted somewhere to put <laughs> the stories after they'd been told. And yeah, it kind of went from there. So now it's a massive part of my job, Queer Stories and yeah, the podcast, the book and the, oh, there's a book of them. I'm so good at selling my work. Um, and, <laughs> and all about women, which we'll and get so to And so all about women this show. weekend. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing I, so I, well at I this. find that so interesting, though. I've not really considered that, you know, when, when queer people do share their stories, it's in the context of education. Uh, education or it's in a it's in a het space and mm -hmm. and they're modified that way and they are often coming out stories and I've yeah not considered how important it might be to make a space to tell queer stories that aren't you know geared to be in a het space oh no matter how many different strategies I use to try to convince the storytellers I book not to go into an educational mode I still get stories submitted to me that are like, this is what gay people experience or this is what a non-binary identity is. And of course, we think we have to explain because we're constantly asked to, and especially trans people are really asked to explain and justify their identities. But cis people who are queer are as well um, still explaining themselves to people. And so trying to get people on board with going, just talk about yourself, you're not responsible 
to explain your whole community or your whole identity to an audience goes against everything we're told every day. But working on that can be quite liberating for the writers. And mostly they come back and they're like, oh, wow, I just get to talk about how I'm obsessed with Irish dancing. Or that was a beautiful story by Hayden Moon. Um, Or I just get to talk about um, my childhood and I don't have to put in the caveat of which pronouns I'm using when and I just get to be a storyteller without expectation and it can be really liberating for the for the storytellers and I suppose that's like what I was saying earlier about how liberating it was to grow up in a family where my sexuality wasn't going to be something I had to hide or question I suppose I'm trying to give someone a 10 minute experience Mm. of that on stage um and the stories that have come out of that have been beautiful and you know six five or six years six years I've been doing them and I'm not sick of reading the stories and I still receive people send me their story copy and it lands in my inbox and I still often weep because the stories are so beautiful or interesting and that's a lovely um, job to have. And you yourself have been on the other side of queer stories and delivered stories in that Mm. space. Can you share me maybe into a story that you've done through queer stories? So I've only told a story twice at Queer Stories Mm. and mostly I don't and there's a, a few reasons for that. One is that my creative headspace versus my kind of curator and host headspace are quite different. And when I'm in a creative headspace, I'm quite self-centered and I just want to think about myself and the story that I'm telling. And so if I put myself on the lineup, my ability to be there for the other storytellers kind of reduces because I go into this performer ego headspace. Mm. So mostly with queer stories, I don't um, tell one, but I did write one for when I published the book that was about my childhood about my mothers and the stories they would tell me. And actually it was a story about them getting divorced and what that meant as this kind of poster child family. And then the other story I told was about the time I got stuck on the Blue Mountains on a cliff um, <laughs> and had to be airlifted out by helicopter. <laughs> They're both oh. on the podcast. So like quite extremes, one quite earnest one about my yeah. childhood and family and one that was just like this ridiculous experience of being theatre students who went abseiling and got stuck. Those are my two quiz story stories. Um, I love that so much. (laughs) Well, because that's Um, the story. When I say to people, tell the story you always want to tell, but no one ever knows to ask. Me going abseiling, getting stuck in the bush, no one knows to ask. But it is my, like, one of my best stories. (laughs) (laughs) And with that. Let's play a Leonard Cohen song, Maeve. <laughs> okay. The song I've chosen is I'm Your Man by Leonard Cohen. So when I was talking about Lady Sings It Better and singing these powerful songs written by men, I'm Your Man was the kind of genesis of that. And without Lady Sings It Better, Queer Stories doesn't happen because Lady Sings It Better was this gateway to me having a career in the arts at all. Um, and so this song was my first solo when I came back to working in the arts. I sang it a cappella at the first Lady Sings It Better concert and when I talk about having ego as a performer I still remember the exact quality of the applause after I sang it for the first time and I still remember a voice going oh that lady does sing it better and I know that that's like super ego driven but (laughs) but that hunger for audience and for applause comes through all my work it's part of everything that I do it's I'm an attention-seeking little mite and this song is really like for me is such an incredible expression of desire. It's dominating, but it's also vulnerable. And Leonard Cohen is an incredible songwriter. He's my favourite storyteller. So that's why I chose it. Amazing. This song is called I'm Your Man by Leonard Cohen. And you're hearing it right here on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. If you want a father for your child, 
Leonard Cohen on FBI Radio 94.5. The song was called I'm Your Man. You are listening to Out of the Box with me, Mia Hull, and independent artist and creative producer Maeve Marsden. On this show, we look at stories and songs, and among those, we sometimes look at love stories. Maeve has one I really <laughs> love, and I think we should share. Maeve, tell me how you met Nikki. <laughs> so... Nikki and I have two stories of how we met. There's how we officially met, which is that I had put a video on my Patreon explaining why I was crowdfunding. And one of the things I was crowdfunding for was to be able to pay someone to edit video content because I'm a Luddite. I got this email from this woman out of the blue that was like, hey, we haven't met, but I think I have your lemongrass plant because Sydney Queer Network, I'd given it to an ex of hers. Um, (laughs) I saw that you're raising funds. Um, and I'm a film editor and I'm currently editing a really boring documentary. Um, I'd love to do something fun and I've seen your work. Let's meet up. And so that's the official, the backstory is that I had flyered her several months earlier for the greens during the state election. And she'd flirted (laughs) with me and remembered my face and then seen the video and connected the dots that I was the quote unquote hot girl from outside the polling booth. And, and so the lemongrass lady as well. And the lemongrass lady. And she was coming to me with nefarious intentions, but I did not know this. I was like, what a nice film editor. I'm <laughs> going to get some free labor. And so we started working on this clip for Akon that was about um, safe sex, but it was also a cover of Nine Inch Nails Closer. And it was the four of us, the Lady Sings It Better crew, wearing gloves and fisting a bunch of different fruits. So I'm sitting with this woman... <laughs> Just <laughs> discussing what would be the sexiest way to fuck, am I allowed to say fuck, to fuck all these fruits <laughs> and singing I Want to Fuck You Like an Animal. Really, this should be one of the songs that I chose. Um, and over the course of the creative period, we just started chatting and chatting and chatting and really, like, hit it off um, in this, like, fierce, constantly chatting all day, can't think, feel like I have a fever because I'm constantly thinking about this person kind of way. And yeah, fell in love. And that was like six and a half years ago. And she still sometimes edits my work for free. <laughs> <laughs> but, but maybe so slightly less So you did get what frequently. you wanted after all. I did then. get the free labour. I got free labour and a lady love. So that was good. <laughs> and you and Nikki recently became parents as yes. well. Congratulations. Thanks. Can you tell me about your journey to parenthood? Yeah. Um, So I had always wanted to be a parent. It's the most consistent desire of my entire life. I was like, I will be um, at some point a parent. And Nikki had wanted to be one too. And when we were met, though, we were like, I was in my mid 30s and she was in her late 30s. So we knew we couldn't stuff around too long if we wanted to have a kid. Um, So sort of a year or two after we'd gotten together, we started looking into IVF and we asked a friend of ours, Cameron, to be a donor. Cameron was one of the wonderful queers I did meet at uni um, in Bathurst. Um, We became fierce friends early on and had long talked about him being a donor. And amusingly, he'd actually worked with Nikki. So it was this beautiful kind of interconnected web of people. 
but it took substantially longer than we'd hoped. My desire to be a parent did not conflate with immediate fertility. Um, and so the IVF, they call it the IVF journey, um, but I hate them. Mm. The journey sounds really naff. Took us, in the end, I think about four years, three or four years, and multiple miscarriages. Um, but <laughs> mid-pandemic, <laughs> who would have thunk mm -hmm. it? In one of the kind of times when they were still doing the procedures, uh, we managed one of them stuck. And so we managed to have Arto, who was born in which outbreak? In the Delta outbreak, <laughs> our pandemic <laughs> baby, um, was born in July last year, just as Sydney was going into lockdown. So we had a bit of a baptism of fire of the first four months, because also one of our rogue pandemic decisions was to move to the Blue Mountains. Uh, so we mm -hmm. found ourselves in an LGA where we only knew a couple of other people for several months where we all weren't allowed to leave our LGAs with a new baby, yeah. with Nikki working from home. Um, so it was a wild introduction to parenting, but one that both of us have really taken to and absolutely love. And it's really nice when you've wanted to do something your whole life to discover that you do love it and are capable and that your partner's also very good at it. Yeah, we've just both loved it and our baby's a relentless delight and mm -hmm. um, I could talk about it for ages and force people to sh look at photos like I'm obsessed with them. <laughs> They're just the best baby. Um, much better than everyone's well, babies, I'm sure. <laughs> well, radio is an audio medium, so unfortunately you can't subject anyone to um, your photos. I'm so I might sorry. look at them later. <laughs> You're not subjecting anyone to a Nine Inch Nails song either, Maybe no. Instead, you've chosen Nairi. Yes. Why did you pick this one? Um, so... One of me and Nikki's first dates was to a Nairi concert and we both really love her and love her music and listen to it a lot. And when we were struggling um, with fertility, one of the songs that we used to listen to when we, you know, sometimes you need to have a cry and you can't, life is just proving yeah. too tense and you can't loosen up. And one yeah. of the songs, Fall Into My Arms, was a song we'd put on and we'd put it on and we'd slow dance and we'd like sob um, when things were really hard and there was a few other things that year that were tough and then while I was pregnant when it became clear that this baby was going to stick around I became really attached to the idea that I would give birth to fall into my arms by Nairi that this song that had been a grief song would become one of kind of joy and that the lyrics felt appropriate to the moment and I'm a high drama girl who likes a logical literal lyric choice um, and <laughs> In the end, I was in labour for 56 hours and had to have an emergency C-section. <laughs> but Nikki had the good sense to grab the little Bluetooth speaker so that as Arto was born, even though it was in a slightly different manner than we'd planned, Nairi's Fall Into My Arms was playing. And the song still makes me cry. I think she's an incredible artist and I'm very proud to have given birth to one of her songs. I'll be here, but you decide, yeah, you decide when you want to It was Fall Into My Arms by Nairi, and you heard it here on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. My guest today is independent artist and creative producer Maeve Marsden, the chooser of that song. Maeve, what does the future hold for you? Mm. 
at the moment I'm sort of doing part-time work in the arts um, because of having a baby and um, eight months old they require quite a bit of engagement um, so that's taking up a lot of my time but I have just submitted the what, ninth draft of a play about lesbians getting divorced I'm not I'm not splitting up but it is a play a, a sort of farcical play about a lesbian family I just directed a queer rock musical about Lizzie Borden and so I'm hoping to get some more seasons for that and I'm continuing to produce queer stories, uh, which is venue hopping a bit at the moment. Uh, its previous venue, Giant Dwarf, was unfortunately a casualty of the latest lockdown and wasn't able to reopen. But queer stories being flexible means it can happen anywhere. And luckily for me, the Opera House got in touch and I'm doing queer stories for All About Women this weekend with a fantastic lineup. So yeah, so I'm doing bits and bobs, writing, hoping to direct again and continuing the Queer Stories baby, which keeps me actively engaged and fresh the musical that you mentioned um mm. about lizzie is that the axe murderer yeah musical yeah 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 so Can you tell me more about that how does that yeah. translate to theater bonkers it's bonkers musical it's a rock <laughs> musical that these guys in america wrote it's a got a cast of four um so lizzie her sister the maid and the next door neighbor who they've contended she was having a romantic relationship with and it's kind of a like rock opera like a lot of direct address so it wasn't that far off the cabaret stuff i'd done and so i pitched to direct it in the middle of like 2020 and then it was meant to happen last year and then we had another lockdown so i'm directing it with a baby attached to me (laughs) in the middle of the omicron outbreak so it was a super bizarre musical at a bizarre time in both my life and the world but we made a magic little show so I hope it has another life I'd love to see it with an audience who aren't terrified of getting COVID Um, Mm. and uh, the cast were incredible so that was at the Hayes Theatre back in January and is yeah literally there is a scene where she's singing and carrying an axe around Um, there's a whole (laughs) scene that's like the courthouse um, and they show you kind of the lead up to they think she did it. She, it in real life she got off but the musical contends that she did it but it's fantastic it's got some banger songs and I worked with an incredible creative team so I hope I get to work on that again but for now it's queer stories I hope you get and... to work on it again as yeah. well yeah 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 I hope you <laughs> get yeah, to see for now it. it's queer stories queer stories and my yeah. human baby not my theatre baby Yes, Queer Stories is happening as part of All About Women at the Sydney Opera House this weekend, Sunday the 13th of March from 7.30pm. Tickets to that one are $33 with an $8.50 booking fee. Um, And yeah, I'll put the details to it up on the programs page on fbiradio.com if you did want to head along. Maeve, thank you so much for joining me today. Is there anything else you'd like to add before you head off? No. Oh, people can subscribe to Queer Stories on the podcast. If they can't make the show or they're not ready to go out again to theatre, the podcast does have 300 stories that, or nearly 300 stories that people can listen to and they're an incredible archive. So do subscribe to the podcast. Check it out. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank what you. song would you like to end on? Oh, let's have something gay, lovely and gay, because this interview hasn't been gay enough. Um <laughs> <laughs> and, Wait, are and you I, gay? Oh my god, I am gay. Um, yeah, no, I I was thinking about how I said that country music is gay, and since we've been talking about my little forays into musical theatre, musical theatre is also inherently queer, and it mostly gets considered 
a genre attached to gay men. But I think it's in light country music, it's inherently lesbian because it's so high drama. We're claiming every genre for the lesbians. Um, so this was a song that used to get sung a lot by the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Choir and other queer choirs around the world. And when I was growing up in kind of the midst of the AIDS epidemic and all of that, those concerts were really emotional. And so I have chosen um, Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz because it gets me. And we'll jump into it right now on FBI Radio 94.5. This has been Out of the Box. Thank you so much for tuning in. My guest Maeve Marsden will be appearing at All About Women this Sunday with Queer Stories. I'll put the details to that one up on the programs page on fbiradio.com. While you're there, you can also see the full list of songs that Maeve brought to the show today and listen back to the show if you like. You can also listen back via the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Huge shout out to producer Rebecca for doing all of the research for this episode and do stay tuned lunch is right around the corner bye